Hi everyone, welcome to the Tyndall Talks, the Tyndall Center's official podcast. I'm Renee from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia. Our episode today is about climate change and its impacts on migration and population displacement. The World Bank's updated Groundswell Report in 2021 finds that climate change could force 216 million people across six world regions to move within their countries by 2050. Climate change is a powerful driver of internal migration because of its impacts on people's livelihoods and loss of livability in highly exposed locations. By 2050, Sub-Saharan Africa could see as many as 86 million internal climate migrants, East Asia and the Pacific, 49 million, South Asia, 40 million, North Africa, 19 million, Latin America, 17 million, and Eastern Europe and Central Asia, 5 million. The report also finds that immediate and concerted action to reduce global emissions and support green, inclusive, and resilient development could reduce the scale of climate migration by as much as 80%. To talk to us more about climate change, migration, and population displacement is Roland Smith, a PhD researcher at the University of East Anglia. Hi, Roland. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Um, just just before we start this uh, this topic, can you just introduce yourself a little bit more? What is your PhD research about? So my focus is understanding um, migration due to sea level rise, human migration, as I'm now working in environmental sciences. Um, whenever I say that, people go, humans? Or, um, so yeah, uh, the impact of sea level rise on, on patterns of migration. So I... My master's was, uh, I studied my master's at the University of Sussex uh, with the Institute of Development Studies. Um, and I became there very interested in the potential impact that climate change will have on um, patterns of mobility. Um, and also the, specifically the complexity of that relationship and trying to unpick it. Um, so my focus is really looking at, and I'm sure we'll go on to kind of talk this in more detail but the what i would talk about are the pre-inundation impacts or sea level rise on migration so i think that many people are aware and you, you periodically see them come up in the news where you see the impact of sea level rise on london and effectively you have a map of london as it is now and you have sea level rise modeled on the thames and you you look and quite a lot of london is underwater um actually for many communities as you suggested in your introduction exposed communities around the world uh, they will begin to feel the impacts of sea level rise well in advance of that persistent or continuous inundation which sort of characterizes our popular imagination of what sea level rise means um so that is through impacts like salinization erosion increased storm surge so it's really trying to understand how that's very much the focus of my, you know, my PhD research is using, well, aspiring to use modelling to understand how those pre-inundation impacts will kind of then impact on existing drivers of mobility. Thank you. So there's no other person best to talk about uh, climate change migration than you. Um, <laughs> and so if we can, if we can just start with explaining what the main drivers of climate change migration are. It's very, I mean, we, in a sense, one needs to take a step back in a 
classic academics way and kind of understand those terms. I mean, let's talk about it from pick up. You know, let's understand it from what most people would imagine, which is that you have increased sea level rise uh, that causes persistent flooding, and people are therefore, and I will do air quotes that no one can see on the podcast, forced to move. Um, now, for many communities around the world, especially those that are most exposed and and therefore, and some who are vulnerable to the impacts of environmental changes or of uh, climate change mobility is already a way of life and i think we can easily fall into this idea that that people are static there is an environmental change which is related to climate change and therefore and as a result they move uh, and actually in reality what you see as, as we see in our own lives uh, you know we um, mobility um, is very much kind of a way in which we seek education, where we seek a livelihood, where we seek economic opportunities, where we fall in love to pursue the people we fall in love with. Um, so those reasons still apply. So when we're looking at climate change impacts, I think what we are mainly focused on is um, those environmental impacts, environmental degradation and the sudden rapid onset events that we would understand to be associated with climate change. Um, I know the debate around the impact on, say, cyclones and tropical storms is still open, but we assume that tropical storms will become more intense um, or whether or not they become more frequent. Um, those impacts will be increasingly felt by, by exposed communities. And therefore, you will see um, those environmental impacts interacting with those existing drivers of mobility um, which kind of drive migration and, and demographic change across the world um, and that I think from the very off we need to understand that there are studies and um, conceptual ideas which suggest that under increased environmental degradation migration and mobility flows actually reduce as we understand that um, you know to migration is a is a relatively high cost enterprise uh, and therefore if there are pressures on your livelihoods it's it's understandable that actually uh, less people may um, may choose to migrate if they if they are afforded that agency so it's quite a complex interplay um, so we we and against all that uh, against that kind of complexity in reality we are already seeing the impacts of sea level rise i mean my own particular focus is looking at the impact in delta regions in bangladesh um, but obviously um what is happening with the small island developing states and specifically pacific islands many of which are facing existential threat from sea level rise um the work I've also been involved in in looking at the impact of um, climate change on areas of East Africa um, and severe worsening, increasing drought in some areas and the destructive impact that's having on people's livelihoods. So in a sense, you have this balance between there's one side, which is um, mobility exists. There's many drivers that are political, social, economic, but also these extreme cumulative 
complex changes that are happening to people's environments and the interplay between those. Thank you. And maybe just to follow up on this, because I find it really interesting when you said, you know, there are many drivers to mobility and it's not just, of course, it's not just climate change. Yeah. But some people are being forced at the moment to move because of climate change impacts. Um, I was wondering if you've come across maybe other studies that show, you know, how um, maybe how people who are moving are adapting to the, to their new environments, because um you know, in the Philippines, we had a really huge typhoon back in 2013, and it, and it caused like a, a, a storm surge, basically. Yeah. And the storm surge flattened out so many coastal towns. Um, and so they were forced to move by the by the government. But as, as you can imagine, uh, these towns were fishing towns, right? Yeah. Um, so they were fisher folks, and that was their livelihood. And the government forced them to move to the mountains. And so they were very angry at this. I mean, I could understand because they were like, well, what are we going to do in the mountains? We we are fisher folks like this is our livelihood. I um, mean, of course, they, they they the government faced pushback, but they, the towns couldn't do anything because the government wanted to close this area so that it won't happen again. So, you know, have you have you encountered any of these in your studies and what are people doing about it? I think. I think you've partly because I think many of us working in this field, especially if you if you're drawn, you know, from a climate change background, it's very easy um, because you know this to a certain degree the study of climate change is mechanistic. We're looking at models and forecasts of of a changing physical biophysical environment. Um, that we do think we do. There's a tendency to think mechanistically about well. People will move or they won't move or there's this impact and this relates to this and that and the other. And you kind of draw a system dynamic model and you understand the interplay. And you've, you've hit exactly the, the main issue, which I think is driving, and I think it's specifically driving uh, a lot of work in the, in the small island developing states and Pacific islands, is but what about cultural heritage? What about our identity? What is a, What about these, these our ways of life which are being lost? Um, it's interesting to talk about the uh, Philippines because there's an equal, there's an interesting study which is actually related but almost the reverse that was um, done by Jamero and Esteban, um, which was a series of small four small islands. I presume the same seismic event, maybe a separate one. Effectively, though, those islands dropped. Um, so, for all intents and purposes, they're sort of a case study of sea level rise. If you see what I mean. And those islands again, fishing communities. Um, and they are underwater, I think, with every high tide, certainly with every king tide. And there's a very beautiful project that they did where they took a 360 um, film camera and actually filmed the way of life that's occurring at the moment. And so you can sit in the school with the children being taught their lesson with virtual reality headset and be you know, to all intents and purposes, uh, two foot underwater and see the kids at their desk with the fish on swimming around. Um, and what's interesting, at least, you know, as a thought provoking idea is that despite this persistent flooding, those communities are remaining. They're trying to persevere in place. Uh, and this isn't an easy choice. And there, there, there's 
you know, increase in childhood illness and disease and obviously lack of fresh water. Um, but it is about preserving both their cultural identity and their livelihoods uh, as, as, as fishermen. Uh, and that, and this is despite the fact, and it's very, you know, as an analogy to to what you were talking about, the government has offered them um, land on the mainland, but of course it doesn't suit their. Um, I don't. It's not quite in the mountains, but there's, there's, it's not in a place where they would be able to sustain sustain their livelihoods and to a certain degree cultural identity. So I think this is when you are. It is an important part of the discussion, I, but also at the same time, it isn't not, you know, it is an existing conversation that is being had. And I think it's very, when you look at, you know, I know less about the Philippines, but when you're looking at small island developing states, one also has to acknowledge that um, transnationalism, migration, um has also been part of that cultural heritage um so i think when you're going back um you know several centuries you will see that um mobility has historically been an important part of life for small island developing states so going to your uh modeling and uh, what you're doing for your phd so in your research you're utilizing agent based modeling to explore the relationship between sea level rise and migration. Yeah. What is the role that modeling plays in broadening our understanding of the impact of climate change on displacement? Why is it important? So I think that we understand modeling in terms of um, understanding the future climate change through modeling, as I said, biophysical mechanisms and understanding temperature change and variability as a result of CO2 emissions. Um, in terms of its impact on human systems, I think this is where there's a real challenge because obviously we can look, as we were just talking about, we can look at historic analogies. Um, so we can look at the impact that a seismic event has had on an island and the relative sea level rise that's caused and look at the how um, communities respond to that as we can in East Africa, when we look at the past impacts of drought and um, serious drought, consecutive drought seasons, um, or extended um, extended rainfall or delayed rains, and look at the impact on populations. Um, so we can, in a sense, draw those analogies from the past. What I think across the board, the, the challenge we are facing with um, the impact of climate change is it's cumulative. So we will have this increasing, this ratcheting up of these environment of environmental degradation. Um, you know, we're constantly looking at new normals, um, and I think what then we are interested in is understanding those tipping points and those thresholds, where you will see. I mean, in my field, what I'm interested in is. If we understand there's pre-existing patterns of human uh, human migration and mobility, um, we understand that you know across the small island developing states there has been mobility, pursuit of livelihoods, and people returning home, um, you know, towards the end of life or going away for education. You have these circular patterns. When are we going to see sudden shifts? When is that going to change in its quality and quantity? Um, 
And this idea of, of thresholds, I think, is quite interesting. And this is why particularly agent-based modelling, um, which is about trying to um, simulate the complex behaviour between agents. So rather than simply having agents which might, might represent a household or an individual and, and looking at their decision-making and their response to environmental change, what you then are building into that model is feedback loops. So you're trying to understand what is the impact of other people moving on those who remain behind. And trying to simulate that emergent behaviour is then about how you will then perceive potential um, changes occurring in the future. And I think with all models, I think from the outside people, uh, there's an assumption that models are about trying to um, um, identify and, and, and sort of draw a potential future under different conditions um, or use it as a forecast or these will be the numbers who are displaced in the future in your introduction you know kind of draw out those those huge eye-watering numbers of people on the move in the future um, but I think for many of us kind of aspiring or working in that field it's actually about trying to explore the relationships um, and trying to understand well what are those relationships and how, uh, under what conditions would you expect to see a change or how could sea level rise um, lead to those conditions? So I think that's, that's where my focus is and it's, quite, it's just trying to unpick where those conditions, how those interplay. Um, the example that I often go back to, which was actually a project that Robert Nichols, my supervisor, kind of worked on um, was in Chesapeake Bay, Holland Island in the United States um, at the start of the last century, where there was an island, an inhabited island, which was vulnerable to storm surge, um, this regular storm surge as opposed to anything related to climate change. And there was this gradual erosion of the island. There was a significant storm, a significant series of storms, and a number of Households were lost on one street. What then happened was the school and church closed on the island. And as a result of that, you saw the island being abandoned by its community. So although the physical island is still, to all intents and purposes, is inhabitable, what actually happened was it was that socioeconomic change. The schools no longer there, churches are there, and therefore the kind of resulting lack of confidence in um, the location that actually then triggered the shift of the abandonment of the island. So I think that, you know, again, it's trying to understand that this, the environmental degradation and change um, of that salinization of agricultural lands or erosion, loss of lands or repeated storm surge, you know, destruction of homes. Actually, what's the tipping point? Where are we going to see those shifts? Again, we go back to this idea that, you know, in small island developing states, there's this idea that flooding, you know, these islands will be underwater. Let's say an island will be underwater in 100 years. There's every chance they will run out of fresh water due to sunlight in 50. So again, it's kind of understanding what will be the driver that, that will actually lead to abandonment. Thank you. And I guess um, modelling actually helps, you know, countries... Uh, maybe look at you know what's going to happen in the in the future in like future years right um and that helps inform policies um, yeah. similar to yeah you know 
and modeling, you know, the carbon emissions, etc. So when it comes to migration, climate change and migration, uh, are there current plans or policies that address climate change migration? And if none, what should be done policy-wise? There are lots of responses at a policy level and an agency level. Um, I think, you know, most recently we saw at COP27, um, you know, this this step forward, albeit a baby step forward on loss and damage. Um, and that did refer to forced displacement impacts, cultural heritage, as we were talking about before, human mobility and the lives of livelihoods of communities. There has been a lot of work. The UNFCC has the task force on displacement. And, and that's really interesting because I think it, it kind of, at least in its in the way it's approaching is it picks up three things. So it's looking to minimise forced migration, assist those to protect those who are affected and to facilitate voluntary migration. So it's not that sort of overall we support people by helping them remain in place and, you know, building seawalls and enabling to stay in situ, but also understanding that, you know, mobility is a part of development. There is this ongoing shift, arguably, well, studies have shown, you know, from rural environments to, to urban environments. At a higher level, we have the Global Compact on Migration, um, which is looking at, um, you know, understands climate change and climate change impacts as a driver or, you know, as impacts on drivers of, of migration. So, in a sense, at that level, at an international agency level, you know, all the alphabet soup of NGOs related to the end. Um, UN, it's it's very clear that that there is an awareness and an, and an understanding of the complexity. To a certain degree, that's then beginning to filter through. So, if you look at the work that um, it's an international organisation, migration UN body associated with migration, certainly working in um, East Africa with um, EGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, um, and they are looking at protocols of free movement of persons across East Africa, you know, who are affected by climate change. Um, so, and that, that's informing studies and you know, work that's, you know, beginning to understand those, those flows and the potential shifts in patterns of mobility. I think where it becomes more tricky is then when you're looking at a, at a local, you know, or at a national government issue. And certainly part of what drew me to this subject is, is that sense of climate justice or injustice. And I found that even people who are very, otherwise very aware of issues around climate change would often couch the impact on migration as being, um, well, we're just going to have, you know, the impact of climate change is going to be so great, we're going to have millions of people flooding from Africa into Northern Europe or flooding from South America. America. And it's like, well, I'm not sure it will characterise itself like that. I'm not sure. But I also think that it's as much an issue if you have people having to leave their homes in rural areas of Bangladesh and head to Dhaka is as problematic as this sort of enemy at the gate idea we have of migration in general of, people of different skin colours knocking on the doors of East, uh, Western Europe. Um, so I think then you get how governments respond to it uh, is very much tied to, you know, 
what is their general attitude to migration? What is their general attitude to loss and damage? Uh, how do you understand those? And actually, I think my personal opinion is that where you will begin to see those changes or the most meaningful impact are within those kind of pre-existing governmental dynamics. So if we're looking at Pacific small island developing states, the relationships they already have with New Zealand and Australia. Uh, and certainly, you know, you have um, the landmark case um, of uh, in New Zealand where um, Teotihuacan, I think it's how one pronounce it, um, effectively appealing. Uh, he's a, um, a Kiribati resident appealing to the New Zealand government for refugee status because of um, the environmental degradation in Kiribati and therefore him claiming refugee status, um, which failed in the New Zealand courts, um, but but was not not being a legal scholar, but was not dismissed out of hand. He, 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 it was a valid claim that that failed under my um, under my understanding. Um, so I think where you already have those relationships, you know, New Zealand already has some relationship with work permits and visas, um, and obviously it is the closest neighbour to um, Kiribati, that you would see those relationships begin to build. You know, speaking about, I guess, migration and and people's connections to their land, mm. um, I remember when I was uh, attending COP21 in Paris, I was able to interview a Pacific Islander who was attending the conference, and he was Maori. And he was saying, you know what, it's not as if it's our decision. No, we don't want, mm. even if our islands are sinking, we don't actually want to leave. And actually, the Maori word for land and placenta is the same. It's called wenwa. Mm. And once a mother gives birth, they actually bury the placenta in, in the soil. Um, and for them, they said, it's like, you know, we are connected to our land. This is who we are. This is where we want to be. And I guess just speaking of, you know, kind of identity, culture, um, especially maybe in the Pacific Islands, as you were saying, um, because they are small island uh, states who are currently facing maybe uh, the most threat of, mm. you know, of uh, sinking. Um, and we see this pattern of migration already happening in, in the Pacific Islands. So, you know, how are countries responding to also the possible loss of identities and cultures. And maybe we've already touched on a little bit um, earlier about this. Um, but what do you think about, you know, this, this, you know, losing cultural identities when it comes to migration? It's problematic. I, I think in one sense, you, you already have those conversations that are beginning to be aware of, of how do those island, the small island developing states, let's say their land is lost. How do they retain sovereignty over the sea effectively to remain that? And I think that even though one could talk very kind of optimistically about, you know, existing patterns of migration and people moving away from home, there is this, as you said, and I think for all of us, a strong connection with that culture and that that home, um, what that means. And certainly, you know, I've got colleagues working on the critical decade um, for climate change 
PhD program who were looking at solastasia, which is the grief that one feels when when those homelands are lost. Um, and yet we do find that migrant communities around the world do retain their cultural identity and cultural heritage, uh, even if that is for quite quite lost lands. Um, I think that it needs to be understood and needs to be um, in the example, to go back to the example that you gave uh, in the Philippines of, well, we'll simply build a new village and move you, uh, is, it shows that lack of understanding. And I, you, you know, I don't want to sound glib with this, but you do find those studies in, in, in um, vulnerable locations um, where you will have interviews of residents who perhaps are having to move relatively short distances. We're talking, you know, hundreds of metres or a kilometre inland away from, um, and they have new, there's, you know, with the government assistance, a new, a new homesteads built. And you find the older members in, of the community saying, you know, retaining their household and saying that that version of the line, I, I was born here. I will die here. This is my land. This is where my family are buried. You know, these are the. This is my ancestral land. I will stay. As my grandmother, when you know she was in poor health, and we wanted to move her to somewhere where she would have more support and health, and she was like, "No, no, this is my home. This is where I brought up my family." You know, these we understand these human connections to our past and to our history. I think there is also we have to acknowledge the flip side, which is then you ask, "Well, what would you want for your grandchildren?" And then there's the paradox of, well, I'd like them to go away. I'd like them to build their lives. I'd like them to have the best education, the best opportunity. Uh, so, I, again, I'm not sure that these are, in essence, conversations that are new or understa- cultural understanding that, that, that perhaps are unusual. Um, it's how does one embrace a future and stay connected to one's past, obviously, is it, you know, defines quite a lot of our existence. Um, well, what's specific is, and how does one do that when one's homes are, are lost to the seas, when they are uninhabitable? Um, and I think that's something that's new, but also something that is being explored. Um, and I think it's about, you know, supporting language, about supporting cultural tradition. An analogy that I discussed with a colleague was when you saw probably um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, when you saw the um, Tibetan diaspora being moved into parts of India, and, and actually states in India towards the south, so Karnataka, so towards the southwest, which is you know, a long way from um, you know, Tibet and from that environment, and how those communities have preserved their cultural identity. Uh, you know, with with schooling, schooling in their own language, schooling in their own traditions, uh, and effectively creating these enclaves of Tibetan cultural heritage. And it's it's clearly still problematic, and there's clearly issues around um, how those two, you know, the enclave of of one cultural identity and, and the new state live alongside each other. Um, but it is possible, in a sense, he said not experiencing it from the completely outside, but it seems there is a precedent for how these, um, how your cultural identity can persist under threat or under loss. And maybe just one last question for this episode. I always tend to end the episode with solutions or, you know, something also that 
maybe other people can can help with or do um, just to because some of our listeners think, well, this problem is too big, but how can I, you know, how can I help? What can I do? So maybe for our last questions, what solutions need to be offered to support those who are exposed um, and vulnerable to the impacts of climate change in making decisions around mobility and maybe individually also? What can our listeners, you know, do to maybe um, help or maybe more understand more or maybe push for policies, you know, about climate change and migration? It's very hard for, for an individual action action but I think that's the case across the board and again it goes back to is the way that one should change policies to affect change for a climate migrant any different to a any other migrant who, who approaches our shores I think it we always have to go back to loss and damage and and I think that's most important that that we understand the responsibility that I have um, in the society that I grew up with, whose wealth to a certain degree is is built on the back of, the, of those less privileged members of our global society, um, and whose actions, you know, will continue to affect disproportionately those. Um, and 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 I think, you know. The impact of climate change on migration, the impact of sea level rise and migration, loss of homes is exactly that climate injustice writ, writ large. It's those who have contributed least to global emissions are in, suffering disproportionately. Loss of homes, loss of lands um, due to our profligacy. Uh, so I think... Number one is just simply understanding that and understanding this sense of climate justice. At the same time, it's also understanding, as I said before, that this is a complex scenario, that we are, you know, the impact isn't going to be felt through, you know, the greatest impact is not going to be an increase in the number of small boats crossing the channel. It's going to be uh, those people fighting for visas or right to stay in New Zealand from Kiribati or those who are looking to find work in Dhaka because their land is no longer productive due to, you know, in, you know repeated storm surge and supporting those communities. And I think we need to understand that, that those uh, phenomena across the world are related to, you know, as a consequence of uh, the actions that our society has made. Um, so I think that awareness is, is is very important in terms of that understanding climate, the impact of climate change and migration. What we can do is a very different subject. Um, and I think that, you know, as you suggested in your opening, you know, all is not lost. And, and you know, there is a significant difference between points of degree and the impact, you know, on on temperature increase and the impact that will have on societies. Um, and uh, so I think, again, working towards these mitigation targets are very important. Um, but I think that understanding, um, the understanding of the impact that it was already having, as you said, you know, it's already conflict there's already loss of land, there's already loss of cultural heritage occurring. Um, and I think being open to those ideas of how we 
not simply home people, but home, preserve their heritage, preserve their history, preserve their cultural identity under conditions if they are forced to move from their homes or choose to move from their homes. And also to understand this is a key part of our development um, and how this is not a singular issue, but it's so tightly woven with ideas of development and ideas of, ideas of growth, ideas of um, our societies moving forward instead. Well, thanks, Roland. I certainly learned a lot about uh, <laughs> climate change and migration and its complexities. Um, and I hope also our listeners learn more about you know these topics, which are which you know they're very important. There's something it's going to happen. You know, mobility, as you said, um, is already happening anyway, and uh, climate change will probably. Um, heighten these for some already exposed vulnerable mm. countries and cities and certainly something that we need to understand better as you said something that you know we need to, to open our minds to um but yes um thanks everyone for listening to this episode and we'll see you in the next <laughs>